0: Rob, how are you doing, my man?
1: All good, all good. Another day above ground, so I'm calling it a win.
0: My grandfather used to say the same thing. My dad says the same thing to this very day. Beats the alternative, right?
1: I I assume so, I don't know yet, but I assume so, yes.
0: Yeah, Yeah. things have been chaotic the last two years, but I will will take my chances above ground. (laughs) Um, For those of you who aren't super familiar with Rob's work, Rob is an author, he's also one of the founders of LMNT, Elemental Labs, which is the electrolyte supplement I use. I have been a big-time advocate for the utilization of sodium, potassium, and magnesium to enhance exercise performance for quite some time. But it wasn't something I knew a ton about until about two or three years ago when I started experimenting with electrolytes. And then somewhere along the road, I found LMNT. And if you guys have listened for a while, you know I love it. You know I love to use it fasted in the morning. But there's a lot of benefits for you know, understanding how these different minerals interact with our physiology for your health, for your performance, and for your longevity. So Rob was the perfect person to bring on and talk to about this topic in particular, because he's an expert in biochemistry, but specifically in electrolytes. So Rob, I guess my first question for you is what got you into physiology, chemistry, biology, and then how did you stumble into this kind of I want to say it's, it's semi untapped, which is how electrolytes can enhance our wellness. Cause we have, we're all familiar with Gatorade and Pedialyte, but many of those beverages contain a ton of sugar. And that's usually where people's understanding of this stuff stops.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the long arc and I just turned 52 weeks ago. So my story keeps getting longer and more meandering and, and all Happy that belated. Stuff. try to be, thank you. Thank you. Um, I have always been interested in human health and performance. Both my parents, unfortunately, were pretty ill. Mm. As I was growing up, both of them smoked, my dad drank, Mm. my mom had a a host of autoimmune related issues. And so I've always been interested in in, uh, living better. You know, I remember having a conversation with my mom and saying, hey, wouldn't it be great to live to be 100? And she was kind of like horror stricken. She's like, no, it'd be horrible. You'd be like, sick and hurt and all this. And I was kind of like, I, it doesn't have to be that way. You know And mm-hmm. I mean? Different people pull different cards out of the deck and we're, we're dealt different cards and, you know, sure. uh, uh, you know, so people have different situations, but I had always been tinkering with my, my nutrition. I was a California state powerlifting champion a long time ago. Um, did a biochemistry undergrad was looking at either medical school or a PhD track. And, um, Around that time, I got really sick. I developed ulcerative colitis so bad that I nearly died from it. And wow. it, it's an inflammatory bowel disease. At the time, I was eating a a, a high carb, low fat, vegan diet, which okay. I think wow. works great for some people. And for me, it was like exactly the opposite of what I should have been doing. Like, it, sure. and I had a bunch of other issues, stress, and low vitamin D, and and a, a bunch of other things. But in figuring out what I needed to do to heal my gut and autoimmune issues, which ended up being a a low carb diet. And that's the way that I've eaten for the last 23 going on 24 years. And that worked great for my gut issues. It worked great for like my cognition. Like I I just have Mm -hmm. really consistent mental focus, but I I co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world. And so the physical activity that I usually do, is kind of higher intensity which sucks on low carb. Yeah. It and does. um and I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I have my brown belt now and and uh jiu-jitsu is also tough on mm-hmm. on low carb. Unless your electrolytes are on point, I mm-hmm. discovered. And so it was it, and again like I have a degree in biochemistry. I've written on this stuff. I'm I'm pretty well steeped on the the biochemistry and the metabolism But somewhere along the line, I didn't understand the really dramatically increased need for electrolytes for athletes in general, and then low carb athletes in particular. And I was, I kind of stalked these two guys, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor. They're the founders of a, a program called Keto Gains. And they just, they're so smart and they work with lots and lots of people, literally thousands of people. And these kind of lower carb uh, body composition changes, but they had people doing jujitsu, they had mm-hmm. people doing CrossFit type stuff. I was like, how the hell are you managing these people, you know? And when I really dug in and, and looked at what they were doing, they made sure that people were getting at least five grams of sodium per day, and appropriate potassium and magnesium. Um, sometimes it was double or triple that on the mm-hmm. sodium, depending on the the person. And when I fixed that, it it was just like a light switch was flipped. Like I, I, that, that, that low gear that is needed for grinding in like wrestling and Mm -hmm. MMA and and all that. I had it again and it was kind of remarkable. And then I noticed that some other problems like sleep related issues and my heart rate variability score improved and like all this stuff just started falling into place. And this was really where we had the idea for starting element. This is, um, Tyler and Luis are co founders in Element with me, but this was like five, six years ago, I guess. And then we, when Tyler and Luis are smarter than I am and they knew the importance of this stuff, I was kind of Johnny come lately in Mm -hmm. in the whole story, but I have a pretty good audience, I have pretty good reach. And so what we did is put together a a free downloadable guide for people to make their own electrolyte mix. And we called it keto aid and it was like this much sodium, this much potassium from no salt, some magnesium citrate, lemon juice, stevia water, shake it up, drink it. And in like six months, we had a half million downloads of this thing. Wow. It was crazy, you know, really popular, really helped a lot of people. Uh, and then the main feedback that we had was, this is, this is really cool. Like electrolytes are critically important. I didn't realize how important they were. And, um, by the way, guys, uh, it's really inconvenient traveling with three bags of white powder. Like the TSA doesn't like Yeah, that, no you know. doubt. And, and, and so would you consider doing some sort of a, a drink mix with this? And this was the whole Genesis for do, like, uh, five wow. years ago, we had no, designs on starting element or doing anything like this. And I think right now it's like one of the fastest growing health and wellness companies in the world right now. Like it's just going like crazy.
0: It's phenomenal. It's, it's everywhere. I see it everywhere. And it's very, very useful, even for people who do not follow a lower carbohydrate approach I've done. I've worked with a number of people who generally do better on a lower carbohydrate approach. And to the point you made earlier, You know, a a vegan higher carbohydrate diet can be very nutritious and very healthful, but it's not necessarily for everybody. And a lower carbohydrate diet with maybe a higher emphasis on protein and the right kinds of fats can also be very healthful, but not for everyone. But the population that I've always felt responded best to electrolyte supplementation was those who follow that lower carbohydrate approach, specifically when they transition to it. Initially, a lot of people will get that keto flu that's often associated with shedding all the water from the glycogen depletion that can happen or just the general reduction of carbs. But as a guy who is like pretty high carb, I was like, I don't know if I, I, I need to supplement with these things until I started doing it. And I started realizing right. in the morning when I trained fasted, having extra electrolytes with my fluid helps me get a better pump. I get fuller mus- uh, musculature when I'm training. Uh, I'm able to get much more what feels like power out of my training at times of day where historically I felt like I have the least power. Like immediately Mm -hmm. after waking, I usually train better in the afternoon. The way I can rehydrate very quickly after doing things like the sauna, I started to realize, wow, you know, electrolytes aren't just for people who do endurance and they're not just for people who are low carb, there are applicable, or there's applicability here for pretty much every athletic population and pretty much every single person. And so you start trying to communicate with people like, hey, have you ever thought about supplementing with electrolytes? And the first thing you hear back every single time, at least in my experience is, well, isn't sodium bad for you? Or isn't too much sodium bad? And there's certainly some populations that might have contraindications for large amounts of sodium. But for people who maybe aren't hypertensive, what can we, you know, what can we teach them about sodium? And is a lot of this stuff kind of misconstrued? Yeah, I mean,
1: it's, it's a really good, good tee up for that. Like that was a, that was a a great tee up. I'll probably do a poorer job answering it than what you did, teeing it up. but the Most people who are, some people exercise so they can eat whatever they want. You know, they're like, I I I do my century rides each weekend so I can eat whatever I want. That's okay. It never goes well for them. They always look like shit. But you know, it's kind of whatever. But um, but generally, what we find is that when people begin to exercise, they tend to eat better. When people tend to eat better, they tend to exercise. These things Mm -hmm. go hand in hand. And when we tend to eat better. we tend to eat less sodium because yeah. the bulk of the sodium that we get is from processed, processed food, food, you know, sure. unless you're doing like olives or pickles or salami or something like that, a really dedicated, you know, higher sodium content food, mm-hmm. our sodium intake tends to drop. And then when you look over at like the American council of sports medicine guidelines mm-hmm. for e- people who exercise the exercise at heat or humidity, you know, but just exercise in general, their guidelines are seven to 10 grams of sodium per day for, for athletes, you know, Mm -hmm. but the dietary recommendations are less than two grams of sodium per day. Mm -hmm. And so there's this like,
0: there's a huge disconnect. There's a massive,
1: you you know, it's, it's like, if, if you're supposed to eat, um, you know, if your energy output is 7,000 calories a day and you're only eating 2000 calories a day, you're, there's going to be problems there. And you know, there's, Similar problems here where people are chronically hyponatremic, low sodium. You you don't always notice it immediately because we store sodium in our bones. Mm -hmm. And so we can pull sodium out of the bones. But when we pull sodium out of the bones, we pull calcium out of the bones too, which may exacerbate osteoporosis, osteopenia. Um, You mentioned that, uh, you know, sodium sensitive hypertensives probably don't need more sodium. But the interesting thing is that they don't really respond fantastically to low-sodium diets. Like There are some populations, particularly um, African-Americans, some Hispanic populations, they do respond more vigorously to a higher sodium intake. And, mm. and conversely, if they reduce sodium intake, they tend to see a, a greater decrease in blood pressure, but it's still, it's like really unimpressive. It goes from- yeah. Really bad to just less bad. But if you get those folks to modify their diet so that their glycemic load is lower and they they get a normal insulin response, then they're not a sodium sensitive hyper responder. So is the problem sodium or is it actually a a mismanagement of insulin and calories and all that type of stuff? So, you know, hypertension is a major, major risk factor for cardiovascular disease. It is a, a gnarly, um, health consideration, it increases the likelihood of stroke and kidney disease and all these other things. So it is really important to properly address that. But we've done a lot of very well designed studies looking at low sodium diets, and their kind of poor efficacy in improving blood pressure. But then mm. we have this other scenario where if people just modify their glycemic load, and this could be paleo, it could be vegan, it could be low carb, but Generally eating minimally processed whole foods, they will reduce their insulin load. They will also reduce their sodium load because it's minimally processed food. And then the flip side is in they need to start looking at supplemental uh, uh, sodium intake. And it's worth mentioning, um, we had a a friend of ours go to Gatorade University and and they have like the Hall of Fame there in in, uh, Florida. And the original Gatorade formulation was a gram of sodium per serving. Wow. And, and now it's like 200 milligrams, like the the sugar has gone up dramatically and the sodium has gone down dramatically. It was really a very good formula in, in its initial incarnation.
0: Yeah, which was what made it so popular was, you know, yeah. you had, hey, this clearly works. You know, I remember very, very well an advertisement that Gatorade ran when I was young that was chopped up and edited to look like it was filmed in the seventies and eighties when I think a lot of this research was being done and right. it was about the evolution of Gatorade. And, you know, it started at the university of Florida. That's why it's called Gatorade. And, you know, they showed all these guys and the old football helmets using it and, and then they flash forward to Usain Bolt and all of the new Gatorade athletes. And they showed kind of how the product has changed you're right. The formula has changed too to basically what is now like a tasty soft drink beverage. It doesn't really contain right. enough sodium to even qualify as a good sports drink anymore. It's more of a piece of sports culture. Gatorade is like an inextricable part of sports culture. You see it on the sidelines in every sporting event. You'll see it on the sidelines this weekend at the Super Bowl, but it's probably not the right. best beverage because, again, it became less about getting the right amount of the electrolyte and more about, can we just make this thing sweet and tasty so that that people will want to drink it? And the the sodium recommendations for athletes remind me a lot versus general population remind me a lot of like the protein recommendations for athletes versus general population. So to your point, you know, if you're inactive, metabolically unwell, you're not taking a particularly good care of your health. You might not need five plus grams of sodium a day. It could right. be, you know, it could have potentially deleterious effects. Maybe, uh, say in the same way that like, if you're not active whatsoever, you don't necessarily need to eat a high amount of protein. But if you are active you know, increasing your intake of protein and increasing your intake of sodium can change your life, change your performance massively. And so as people look to try to get the most out of electrolyte supplementation or take their performance to the next level with electrolyte supplementation, uh, I think they think of sport. But are there applications here for maybe people who don't compete in what we conventionally think of as sport like basketball and football, but maybe for people who do weightlifting or maybe for people who do endurance work, like what populations stand to benefit the most from, you know, conscientious electrolyte supplementation?
1: Oh man, that's a, that's a good question. And it, it uh, I mean, it's, it's worth reminding folks that all energy production, every nerve impulse, every muscle contraction occurs as a consequence of sodium potassium pumps in the body, you know, mm-hmm. TCA cycle, you know that that whole thing, and I I was noodling on this, and you know if we if somebody arrived unconscious to an emergency room, the physician would look at blood glucose to see if they're like you know diabetic coma, Um, but blood glucose can exist over a pretty broad spectrum, and people will survive. So if we ignore that, then they will look at pH, and the doctor will look at electrolytes. And pH and electrolytes are arguably the most tightly regulated physiological processes in the body. If your pH goes up or down a little bit, you you might die and you will oh, sure feel terrible. And um, same deal with electrolytes. Like if you're a little bit off on electrolytes, you, you will really feel terrible and you could potentially die from it. And so uh, you like you mentioned, um, lifting weights and getting a better pump, even yeah. if a little bit on the lower carb side of things, like that's a big deal that... That pump, that vascularization, is a consequence of blood flow, and that is driven in large part by these sodium potassium, you know, processes of of I- increasing a, a vasodilation in the area, nitrous oxide mm. release, like all that stuff is facilitated by by adequate sodium levels. Um, having the proper amount of fluid in our circulatory system yeah. means that each time our heart beats. It beats efficiently, like if the heart is if we are hypovolemic, if we're low volume, the heart needs to beat faster to get the same amount of of work done, so that's a stress on the heart, clearly hypervolemic too is problematic that that's where hypertension uh comes in, but you know there's there's just um cognition like the way that we we think it's all driven by sodium potassium pumps, and people will notice it, it and again, like the guy who is selling salt, of course, someone be like, "Hey, there's these million different scenarios where this stuff is beneficial for you." But it, it's what we've noticed is that there will be all these situations where folks would normally feel kind of low energy, like maybe that two p.m. in the afternoon mm-hmm. deal, where you're, ah, <laughs> you know, it, yes. and it seems like you get a second wind around three or four p.m. And, and all that stuff. But oftentimes, the you know, my impulse would be to grab some more coffee or maybe make a green tea or something like that. I, I, I just find that like, if I just top off electrolytes, like even if I make sure that my lunch at at around noon or one o'clock is sodium rich, like I make sure to add some salami or like some salted cheese, or I do like 20 olives that give me a a gram, gram and a half of sodium. I don't end up with that slump later in the day. So this uh, energy slump is a big deal. So you know, having proper circulation, energy levels, cognitive kind of, kind of crispness. I can't think of any scenario where folks wouldn't want that unless they're, you know, wanting to like smoke a lot of pot and eat, eat Cheetos and just sit on the couch and be super mellow or something. You know, it's about the only time you're, you're not like fighting for, you know, some sort of uh, uh, robust like mental and physical state.
0: No, I, I love that, and I think that when we're we're talking a lot about electrolytes, we we do focus on sodium. But there's two other electrolytes in the element formula, and I think these are just minerals in general that don't get talked about much. Uh, magnesium more so than potassium. When people think of potassium, they think of like bananas, and that's really where it stops. Like I think I think potassium, yeah, that's in bananas, okay. But they don't really understand what potassium does, and I know magnesium does. Not everything, but it's involved in so many different biological processes. We'll get to that in a second. But how do potassium and magnesium, starting with potassium, complement sodium? Why are these three often included in electrolyte beverages? Sodium on its own is, like you said, it is in a lot of these hyper-processed foods. So sometimes you get enough from your diet. But potassium and magnesium are often things that people are deficient in. Why are those so important?
1: You know the I, I will actually tackle the magnesium first because it, it's kind please, of easier. please please it, it um it's involved with atp production so this fundamental um energy, energy currency it, it, of it, the body know, it, it, yeah it uh it's part of the the um, enzymatic process for turning atp over it, it regulates inflammatory markers immune function insulin sensitivity it's just like on and on and on it's critical in the functioning of, of vitamin D, like it mm-hmm. enhances the efficacy of vitamin D if you have. And we usually think about vitamin D and calcium. But if you have inadequate magnesium, then the vitamin D doesn't even do what it's supposed to do appropriately. Uh, mm-hmm. On the potassium side, sodium and potassium work synergistically. We, we tend to pump more sodium outside of cells and more potassium inside of cells. And that differential is what drives the sodium potassium pumps uh, uh potassium again is is really important in blood pressure regulation fluid balance kidney function and it, it it's all electrochemical gradients it it um the body uses these positively charged metal ions in the form of sodium and potassium to be able to move fluids around the body conduct electrical impulses and so if we look at our 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 l- being as like an electrochemical battery that is sure. mainly driven by sodium and potassium and with magnesium being a really important orchestrator within that, all that this is why this stuff is so important you know yeah. i mean it, it's uh trying to think of a good analogy but you know if if uh, if we have a battery like a lithium ion battery that runs our computer or our cell phone and we have sure. something wrong with that It's just not going to function like the Mm -hmm. the fundamental, you know, energy architecture isn't going to be there. And so it's, it's not going to be able to to make it function.
0: Yeah, I remember when in rewinding all the way back to high school biology, like learning about the sodium potassium pump and my teacher being like, well, if this thing's off, you just die. You just die. If this thing doesn't work, Like nothing in your body works. Your heart won't work. So much of what we do as an organism is contingent on maintaining the balance of sodium and potassium. And then to the point you made, magnesium is used in so many different biological processes, whether it's with vitamin D or the many different ways it's used as a cofactor. It's used everywhere. And you gave some really good recommendations nutritionally to increase your sodium, whether it's cured meat, like a salami, a couple of olives, some salted cheese, uh, adding salt even to your food. We can talk about what kind of salts. I'm kind of a proponent that it doesn't so much matter. Some people in our space are like, dude, no, it's got to be like from the beard of a seaman, you know, who's been at sea for 25 years, only in the purest of waters, you know, it really depends. But where can we get potassium in our diet? And where can we get magnesium in our diet? For those who are interested, I guess, first and foremost, in getting these things from whole foods, and then we'll talk a little bit more, I think, about supplemental electrolytes and how to maximize performance with timing these things when when you take your electrolytes when i take mine etc so whole food sources of potassium and magnesium hey guys just wanted to take a quick second to say thanks so much for listening to the podcast and if you're finding value, it would mean the world to me if you would share it on your social media. Simply screenshot whatever platform you're listening to and share the episode to your Instagram story or share it to Facebook. But be sure to tag me so I can say thanks and we can chat it up about what you liked and how I can continue to improve. Thanks so much for supporting the podcast and enjoy the rest of the episode.
1: You really hit on it. That, that is where we get a, our potassium, magnesium, like any whole minimally processed food typically has a lot of potassium. Magnesium tends to be found a bit more in, um, green vegetables because Mm -hmm. it's the chlorophyll component of green vegetables. Although nuts and seeds have a fair amount of potassium, seafood, meat. Um, I've, I love grilling meat, but one of the things that makes me sad about grilling meat is you drip all the the juice out of yeah. there. And so, like, this is a part of the reason why I'll, I'll kind of opt for more of a pan seared steak or even pork chop or something. Yeah. Because then I will take those drippings and then cook vegetables in it because I'm nice. keeping all it. it that is a, a bunch of potassium and magnesium in, the, in there at, at the end of the day. Um, totally. This is part of the reason why um, folks in westernized societies tend to be consuming inadequate amounts of potassium and magnesium because they eat a, a highly processed diet. I, I want to sure. say there was a, a study recently that suggested that, um, 78% of the American diet would be considered, uh, uh super processed, like, yeah, like hyper-palable, super processed, something like that, like crazy. So, um, the bulk of the potassium and magnesium has been removed from these foods. And interestingly, they get fortified with sodium because it, it enhances the the flavor, but this is where any move towards a minimally processed whole food oriented diet will, will typically really increase the potassium and magnesium in the, yeah. in the diet and oftentimes create the, the need for some, you know, supplemental sodium. It's interesting looking at, at more uh, traditional like Mediterranean diets, uh, Okinawan, Japanese diets there's a lot of fermented food. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of salted food that is peripheral to these minimally processed, like whole grains, seafood, fruits, vegetables, root shoots, tubers. So very rich in magnesium and potassium with the baseline of the diet. And then... Usually used as a food preservative, the the sodium is is typically used in that way. But it's also interesting that it's very complementary to these these diets and and very highly priced food.
0: Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I was talking to a a friend of mine yesterday and, and we were discussing a little bit about sodium and he was like, man, you know, I've heard a lot about how my sodium intake should be lower because some of this conventional wisdom around sodium being bad, because one of the things that we've seen, especially in the last couple of years is it's really hard to nail messaging when it comes to large-scale health information of any kind. It's really hard right. to, to provide nuance. We all struggle with it. It's something that I think you do really well. Having followed your work for quite some time, it's actually something I feel like you get better at. Like I, I Just the way that you've discussed a few things today with so much nuance, Like it's a skill. It takes a lot of humility, but it really also takes a lot of subject matter expertise to be like... This is what we know to be mostly true. These are some of the instances where, you know, hey, we might have to make some modifications. But he was like, one serving of processed foods has like my whole day's worth of sodium in it. So if I eat a diet that's generally whole foods and generally nutritious, yes, I might get more sodium and potassium or magnesium and potassium. But to your point, if an athlete who eats very few processed foods, you know, needs 5, 7, 10 grams of sodium, they're going to probably have to use a supplement or they're going to have to probably be very mindful about using salt in their diet to get there. So are there types of salt that you think are more beneficial? I know in the like bodybuilding world, pink Himalayan salt is like people crack it in their pre-workout, which I don't think there's anything wrong with pink Himalayan salt, but are our salts, Created equal, or are there like truly? Is there a tier list of how these salts get broken down?
1: I'm really good at pissing people off at me, and and uh, I'm in very much the same camp that you are. I I just it could be milked by you know the tears of llamas and collected in a basin in the you know 22,000 feet elevation in the Himalayas and everything. And I, I I the the thing that you need is sodium, and people will talk about all these other Trace minerals. minerals. Are, yeah. Some of those trace minerals are, are lead and arsenic and cadmium and stuff like that. They're not necessarily good for you. So yeah. it, it's, um, I think that that's the wrong place to look for trace minerals. Like really good seafood is a great place to look for. Trace sure. Minerals, Gosh. You know? I mean, and, one
0: oyster can give you like all the trace minerals you need for the whole day. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm not a popular person around the like magical salt uh story uh, but yeah I, I just whatever salt you want to use i think there are some really interesting salts there are like smoked salts and dip, you know things that people have done interesting things with and i i think that they can have remarkably different mouthfeels and different sure. kind of palate experiences and stuff like that but as far as like the mineral content like i i think that it, it, when people get start geeking out on that I ask them: Are you eating a gram of protein per pound of body weight? Are you strength training three to four days a week? Are you doing zone two cardio two to four days a week? Are you learning a new language, a musical instrument, or some other cognitively demanding thing? Um, do you have adequate social connections, like doing jujitsu or CrossFit or yoga? Like, there's all this other. Do you get a tan with any frequency? You know, seriously. Like, there's all this other stuff that I just feel like is such guaranteed return on investment, and then getting out in the weeds about the mineral content of your salt i I think' kind of kind of crazy, like if you're at that spot and you've really ticked all the other boxes, then great, but I don't see many people there it's're
0: you're, you're spot on, and i i for people who have a tendency to you know kind of miss the forest for the trees. You know, I don't know why that started happening. It seems like it's unbelievably common amongst fitness enthusiasts, health enthusiasts. I think a lot of it just has to do with you can never really get it all figured out. There is so much to learn. Once you learn one thing, now there's 10 more new things to learn, and you can fall down these rabbit holes, but you're spot on. You've got to nail those big rocks, the things that have the highest ROI, and then we can talk a little bit more about sodium, but I think you made the right point here, which is that most of the like decisions one is probably going to make about which sodium or salt product they're going to use is largely going to be driven by mouthfeel taste and dietary preference but from a performance standpoint sodium is sodium we're talking about the element sodium and how that actually helps the body perform physically um so when it comes to using sodium as a tool to increase performance same thing with magnesium and potassium i I like to use an electrolyte supplement and i kind of alluded to the fact that i'll take it early in the morning before fasted weight Mm -hmm. training uh i'll take it every day no matter what like i will start my day with one packet of element in a big glass water bottle and i will sip on that every single day whether i'm training uh or not but for people who are looking to get the most out of Let's start, I guess, first with anaerobic exercise, resistance-based exercise. Where might they want to supplement with something like Element or an electrolyte to get the most out of their weightlifting experience?
1: Definitely weight strength training. There's a great case to be made for pre and peri workout. You know, so like, you know, you've got a a gram of sodium in a liter of water or thereabouts, you you know, plus or minus, and maybe you do a third of that. 10 minutes before, and then you do some during and a little bit afterwards. And, and you can play with, with that, but I think people will notice that the, to the degree that you're gonna get a pump, like if it's really low volume, high intensity stuff, you know, like sure. powerlifting and sure. Olympic lifting, you know, it's gonna be a little different, but to the degree you're gonna get a pump, you will get a pump, you'll definitely get better like neural drive, like being definitely. able to, to bow down on something. And I think that that's a, a great period to do it. Um, uh, we've noticed interestingly, when people are in that recovery process, uh, half a gram to a gram of sodium right before bed in mm. just a scant amount of water, um, it suppresses antidiuretic hormone wow. and, and kind of downregulate some, some, uh, cortisol signaling we've seen people experience really markedly improved heart rate variability scores mm. by improving their sodium intake in general but doing it right you know right before bed so that's sure. kind of an interesting time to take care of that and then broadly you know one of the greatest challenges i have is is trying to help people figure out how much electrolytes in general they need but sodium in particular because it's so variable like totally big male small female hot environment jujitsu environments. Yeah. You know, all this stuff. Um, and the bracket that I, I feel pretty comfortable with is most people would benefit from getting about five grams of sodium per day. Some people will need double that occasionally, very occasionally you'll, you'll see 12, maybe 15 grams of sodium per day under really extreme circumstances, but that's pretty rare.
0: I love that. One thing that I think comes up a lot when we talk about sodium is water retention and bloating and you you brought up anti-diuretic hormone a little bit and that's ob- obviously a piece of the puzzle it's it's not as simple as sodium makes you bloated no sodium makes you not bloated there are ways to manipulate how much fluid you hold by manipulating sodium manipulating carbohydrate but is there kind of a misconception around sodium as it pertains to bloating and water retention and are some people more sensitive to it than others
1: yeah definitely there are folks that are more sensitive to it than others uh most people would probably be able to identify with this. Um, You go out for a hike or, you know, long walk, but hikes are a pretty good example. And you're just drinking plain water and you go through the day or several hours. And when you get done, your hands are swollen and your Mm -hmm. feet are swollen. And the reason why is that we're actually diluting sodium. We're in Mm -hmm. a hyponatremic, a low sodium environment. And that excess of potassium will actually cause cerebral edema like swelling in the brain you know swelling of the hands and feet and what would normalize that is actually getting some sodium in the mix Mm -hmm. now the the flip side of that is that people will go out for like a mexican food meal and really burn it down and the next day they're like puffy and and all that because they had Salty margaritas and some other stuff, but they also had a mountain of calories and a bunch of carbs. Sure, and we know that elevated insulin, elevated carbohydrate intake causes us to retain sodium. So sure. I think it becomes really important to parse all that that stuff out and yeah. and keep it kind of kind of separated. Yeah, so
0: it's a really good analogy, and I, I do think that there are many cases in fitness, health, wellness where. Too little of something can be problematic and too much of something can be problematic. But the range at which most people will experience optimization is large enough that we can all work to get there if we're patient, mindful, and pay attention to it. Um, Something else I'd like to highlight here before I let you go is uh, when we sweat, when we lose fluid, Mm -hmm. uh, it's often recommended that we replace not just the fluid that we lose due to sweat but also some of these electrolytes. So something that has become exceptionally popular of late, uh, I remember like seven, six, maybe seven years ago when Rhonda Patrick first went on Joe Rogan and talked about the reduced risk of all-cause mortality that's associated with regular sauna use. Mm -hmm. Sauna started to become a lot more popular. And then about five years ago, infrared sauna started to become really, really commonplace and and people started getting saunas in their home. And now we've got people like Andrew Huberman who are, you know, also sharing some of the evidence-based, you know, benefits of regular sauna use. And and this has become something now that is so popular. I sometimes have to wait in line to use the sauna at my local gym, which for a decade was the fucking most empty spot in the entire place. And so... A lot of people who follow me know I like the sauna and they know that I will sip on electrolytes in the sauna. When your sweat rate gets really high or you lose a lot of fluid or you're doing something like sauna, should you always have electrolytes? Should you just use sodium? Do we lose just sodium? Do we lose a little bit of magnesium and potassium? What's happening in those environments? And is that a situation where supplemental electrolytes is a necessity?
1: Yeah, it, so we lose almost exclusively sodium. There's okay. a little. It's like a hundred to one sodium to to uh, magnesium potassium. So it, it's not a bad idea. Like if you throw down some electrolytes to to have some potassium and magnesium with it. But mm-hmm. if you just had to focus on one thing, sodium, it's definitely the thing to focus on. We've had the good fortune of working with like some NHL uh, and and. Uh, Major League Baseball, NFL teams, and some of these larger male athletes, males sweat a little bit differently than females do. Mm-hmm. Females it tends to be a smaller, more ubiquitous sweat pores, and they get more efficient kind of kind of thermal effects, uh, cooling effects. Men it tends to be more gloppy, you know, drips of, of sweat, and they tend to lose a little bit more sodium in the sweat. And okay. a larger male you know, a 200, 210 pound athlete, um, hard practice, a hard game. They can lose 10 pounds yeah. of water and 10 grams of sodium, 10,000 milligrams of sodium in that session. Yeah. And so insane. it, which is crazy. And if you do a hard training session the next day and then the next day, and then the next day, if you're not staying ahead of that, then you're going to start pulling sodium out of the bones we see disordered sleep, we, mm-hmm. you know, we see all these, these different problems. So, um, we really do need to, depending on the, the, um, the physical demands of what the person is doing, total energy output, heat, humidity, type of clothing they're wearing, you know, all that type of stuff, like a jitsu gi, you, you know, person doing Brazilian jitsu, they have a rash card, they have sprats, they have a, a, a gi on like, they're in a sauna every day. And even if sure. it's cool, it's hot, you know, and yeah. then you have a person laying on you on top of that. So it, it's uh, it's always warm and always a, a lot of fluid loss. But if you're going to do this stuff serially, it's critically important to recharge from one session to the other. And part of the the real benefit of sauna, and this is why dry sauna, it appears to be so much more beneficial than like a steam sauna, a steam sauna, you don't sweat. No, the high not humidity as much. is really uh, uncomfortable because of the, the high humidity. And so you can't sweat and you can't thermoregulate. Yeah. So you just get hot and then you're, you're overwhelmed and you're done. So much of what the benefit appears to be in, in like infrared and traditional dry sauna is the elevated heart rate that comes about from, you know, trying to thermoregulate and, and cool your body.
0: It's basically so like a low dose of cardio.
1: It is. It's absolutely a low dose of cardio. And to get the most out of that, you want adequate fluid volume. Mm -hmm. So you, you would like to stay in that fight as long as you could. So you could sip on a, a, an isotonic electrolyte solution and where normally you might need to tap out at like 20 minutes, maybe you get 25, maybe you get 30, you get even more of the heat shock proteins, you get more of that, uh, uh, left ventricular hyperloading of the, the fluid upon the return, which seems to be beneficial for cardiac health and, and you know vascular health and whatnot. So, you know, there's a mental toughness element inherent in sauna, but I don't, it's silly in my mind to make it more about mental toughness, like saying, yeah. well, if, if I drink electrolytes, I'll be able to stay in longer. Good. You get yeah. more of a training effect. Absolutely. If, we're, if you're dehydrated and you're low electrolytes, uh, like I saw a guy almost pass out the other day when I was, when I was at the gym, like he literally went down on all fours when he opened the door to get out of there. And I, I gave him some elements and we, we had a chap, you know, head injury. So you're doing all this shit for your health. And then you crack your head going down and you you have a traumatic brain injury, like good luck with that, you know. So um, I think that there's a really powerful case to be made for adequate sodium, adequate appropriate hydration to keep you in that process longer so that you get more of a training effect out of it.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And the mental toughness thing is going to be developed regardless. Like, I I think it's It's challenging challenging. to be in a hot sauna. And the reason I asked that question the way I asked it is one of the more conventional pieces of wisdom that's shared about the sauna is that it helps you detox. And so I was like, okay, there's a lot of conflicting opinions about this. And I looked into some of the literature about what is and isn't exchanged in that fluid that's lost through sweat in the sauna. And, And you can actually find that, a lot of the minerals and metals that are exchanged, you know, they're exchanged in these certain amounts. And sodium was just massively higher and mm-hmm. everything else was tiny, infinitesimal and oftentimes significant, uh, statistically insignificant. So some of those heavy metals like lead and stuff, They're exchanged at such small amounts that you would go, "Eh, I don't know if we can say sauna is effective at detoxing the body, but it definitely appears to be effective at pumping sodium out of the body. And so as somebody who regularly recommends sauna usage for health, for cardiovascular benefits, I find personally, it's just from a subjective standpoint, phenomenal for my mood, take electrolytes in there with you every time, or at least crack some salt into your water i I think you'll do substantially better at replacing what you're losing and you will you will stand to be a little bit less likely to experience something like you said where you pass out or fall over there is at least one or two people a month that would have to get pulled out of the sauna when i worked at a commercial gym in my early 20s every every month like clockwork code blue somebody fell down in the sauna because they got dehydrated All right, Rob. Well, I think that'll do it for today. This is very, very, very informative. And I think that people now kind of have the ability to make more informed decisions about their sodium consumption, their electrolyte consumption. We've debunked a ton of myths. Uh, Where can they find you? How can they find Element? This is something that I've shared with them before, but it's a fantastic company. Your work has always inspired me. um, And I want to make sure that they know where to find that.
1: Yeah, uh, robwolf.com is where most of my stuff lives. I do a lot of writing for Element. And if you go to drinkelement.com, that's where you can find that stuff. And I'm sure you probably have like one of the affiliate links somewhere for the uh, like the free plus shipping for folks to to check all that out. I and do, I, yeah. I, I will uh, mention that we have this program called Give Assault. And it's basically a a, you know, I guess a do social good program where if you know a trainer a coach, a frontline, you know, uh, police, military, fire that is doing good work, you go to uh, drinkelement.com forward slash give a salt and, um, you nominate the person and we'll send them salt and we send you salt too. So it's, uh, it's been this amazing program that, uh, we We started really at the very beginning of COVID and has become one of the biggest features of what we have going on.
0: That's awesome. I love that. I didn't know about that, but you guys definitely check that out. Check out Rob's work. Check out the work that Element is doing. I think they're really changing the game and influencing what I would describe as a better understanding of how we interface with these minerals. Sodium is not all bad. And again, Rob, just to compliment you, you speak with so much nuance. You've really paint things in a way that I think is, uh, you don't speak in absolutes. Let me put it to you that way. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you today and learn from you over the years. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Huge honor. Thank you.